I don't know what it is about the pandemic. Everybody is riding bicycle now. So <laughs> yeah, I know. I saw your bicycle there. So yeah. a couple of guys were riding bike and they they invited me to come. I'm like, bro, man, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not about that life <laughs> yet. <laughs> yet. So today on Life on Purpose, um, I have my brothers, um, uh, Chidi Ayanlechi and Victor Lofenmaking. Um, and today we'll be talking about uh, what I call real life monopoly, real life monopoly. And the idea is that you know, if anyone has ever played monopoly game, you understand that you, know, you buy one property, you buy the land or whatnot, uh, you wait some time, you develop it and you buy the next and then you buy a third and then you, you possibly buy a fourth and then, you know, you turn those four into a hotel or a multiplex or, and then you do the same somewhere else. So, you know, so I, I thought it best to talk to you guys who are in the real estate game um, and I'll do like a brief uh, idea of what I know, but then I'll ask them to also, you know, share a little bit about himself. So Victor Lafemakin is a realtor. He's a broker. He's, he's been in the industry for a minute. I'm not doing it justice, so let me come to you, Victor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. The folks who who's listening to season one probably already know you, but go ahead, tell us about yourself. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I think you're doing it justice, actually. Uh, but uh, like you said, I'm a, a real estate broker, also a mortgage broker. We have a mortgage bank called Gazette Mortgage. Uh, we have a few businesses around the policy space including owning commercial properties, uh, having an uh, investments company, Freedom Capital Group, where we help we'll invest uh, in a syndication and otherwise, a property management company, real estate, and a uh, education company. So we teach CEs, continued education for realtors, among uh, other things we do in the real space. I'm also a military officer, I'm a naval officer, that's my first love. I'm an author of two books and working on publishing my third one right now uh, with Lana as well. Uh, we're in a group of three of us kind of helping each other in a publishing book. Well, pretty much my whole life, my whole work life revolves around those things. Awesome. So I'm going to call you out, man. We need that third book ASAP, bro. You, you, you know what I'm saying. So I got you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Victor. Um, and next, I'm going to my brother, Chidi, um, Chidi Ayanlechi. He, you know, I love how he, you know, when you ask Chidi, Chidi, what do you do? Chidi will say, I'm in real estate, you know, and, and he keeps it simple. Uh, but I'm going to ask him to maybe just share a little bit more um, about himself. Uh, Mr. Ayanlechi, sir? Yeah. Hey, uh, thank you. Yeah, it's kind of hard going after Victor, man. After all that um, accolades, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Nah, you know, you're you're many, like you're all right. Yeah. I'm just just a regular dude in real estate that um, that just realized that I had to do something different um, for myself. Um, the one story that I always talk about was I had a I had a family member that had that come stay with me for about six months. Um, he had an accident um, on his foot and he couldn't. He was playing soccer and he broke his ankle. Like he couldn't work. He was in my house for about six months. And right there, I kind of put myself in that person's position. I was like, if that was me in six months, um, can I still pay my bills? Can I still go to work? Um, can I still provide for my family? And this was way back in 2016. And I just realized I had to do something different. And um, I knew it was always going to be real estate. I knew way back from, you know, more than 10, 12 years ago, um, that I wanted to be in real estate and I just got into real estate and, you know, my day job is still related to real estate as a credit underwriter um, and I buy properties at nighttime. So it's pretty much, you know, about me. Awesome. Awesome. But, you know, the interesting thing is, um, you know, for both of you, y'all are in different, if I may say, different um, angles of real estate, you know, and that's why I was intentional about asking the two of you to come on. You know, Chidi, you you do more acquisitions for you and maybe a few friends or whatnot. Um, but you're, you're more on the acquisition almost as, as a buyer um, where uh, Victor is, is, is a broker. Um, although Victor does some syndicates and obviously owns real estate himself, 
but Victor is also more in commercial. And so, you know, what I wanted to do was really just talk about, and, and maybe I'll come to you, Victor, here, you know, from your knowledge, um, being, seeing that you've done, um, you know, both family and all that, and then um, now you're more into the commercial world. What, what are the major differences from your perspective, Victor, between, you know, residential and commercial real estate? Wow. Yeah, we could talk about that till tomorrow. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, well, with the example you gave, uh, this being a real life monopoly, that's probably one of the places to start, right? With residential and commercial. Right? So if you ever play Monopoly, you know, when you have one house, your cash flow, your leverage, everything is just a small, it's just smaller, right? And you go two and you go three. Once you get those hotels, and it's like it's really hard to not care from that game. You know, and if you have more than one more than one person have a hotel, it's basically, it's basically trading money at that point in time because you're both gonna be killing it. And it's kind of like that with residential and commercial. So residential, you know, it's kind of plain in a smaller game, right? I mean, there are myriads of other reasons why, uh, but you can get as complex as possible, We're talking about cap rates and valuation occupancy rates, triple net lease. There's a lot of things we can talk about on how I think commercial supersedes residential. But the big picture is just that, right? You know, you're playing a small game here and there. There's very little leverage with residential, whereas commercial, there's just more you can do, more leverage, more cash flow. Uh, and, you know, in, in life sometimes, it takes as much effort to go after the small deal than to go after the big deal. It's sometimes actually easier to go to the big at a certain point in time because there's less people competing for that, right? So that's part of it. Now, that being said, obviously, there are, everything else is pros and cons. Uh, there are pros to residential as well, right? Because it's smaller, it's easy to transact. You can transact quicker, get tenants quicker, get it sold you know, quicker and those kind of things. Whereas commercial, you, know, you can have a property in the market for years without a tenant. Right, so we have all those uh, pros and cons. Overall, I think commercials, commercial estate has more pros uh, than residential and less cons than residential. Okay, thanks, Victor. You know, Didi, one thing that he touched on was, you know, it's probably easier to uh, sell um, a, a, a commercial, I'm sorry, a residential than it is to sell a commercial, you know, and, and what comes to mind is not only the selling part, but the tenant, right? It takes a while or it, it may take a while to get a tenant in or a few tenants in into a commercial. So for example, if you have a, a uh, say a 20 door um, uh, property that's residential, so 20, 20 door apartment, as opposed to a 20 door commercial, you know, just looking at those differences. Chidi, what are your thoughts on vacancy rates in the residential world right now. And when we say vacancy rate, basically, that basically means how, you know, how quick or how long does it take for you to find someone else into your property? So you want to touch on that a little bit? What's, what's reality looking like days in yes. 2021? Yeah, so, um, so coming from a, I'll speak from two angles, right? So coming from a lender's perspective, right? A lender, you know, kind of, uh, they, they work with a 25% vacancy factor, you know, assuming that, you know, in every, um, in every one year, you know, you're not going to have people living in that property, you know, 25% of the time. Um, but in actuality, um, especially now in this market, that there's low inventory, that a lot of people relocating to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, I'm almost running out of negative, <laughs> to mm. be honest, um, because I, I have people that, you know, I want to see on the waiting list, but I mean, you know, it's not like, hey, they're, they're trying to wait for someone to step out to step in. But I have people that are, you know, either on my call list or text messages saying, hey, um, I, I want to move into this property. Um, my lease is expiring in March and I, I want to rent from you. Um, can you let me know if you're going to have anything available within that period of time? Um, and I've seen situations where, um, tenants move out for whatever reason and the moment I put that market that property back on the market and when I'm in the back on the market like on the MLS using Facebook marketplace which is free 
Mm. Um, I, I'm getting applications um, in even before I have even done anything to the property to improve it for the tenants to move in. Um, and so, you know, it, it's pretty much, and, you know, I don't know if it's an ideal situation given the circumstances we are right now with real estate, but now as a landlord residential, it's it's been a sweet spot, um, you know, and that's given us that leverage in increasing rent a little bit more, you know, tenants are paying $100, $150 more than what you're asking for just to get that one piece property. Um, especially if it checks their box, it's in a good location um, and they feel like it's the right thing, the right place they're looking for, they will pay a little bit more um, to get in there. So it, it's been a sweet spot. Um, and so even though a lender is looking at that 25%, making that assumption that, you know, a few months in a year, you're not going to have anybody in there. That's been very conservative. But in actuality, we're almost running at almost almost zero. Um, but again, to to Victor's point, commercially, you know, it might take a few months to get someone in there, but when they're there, they're there for years, mm. you know, so they, they, they stay put. You, you don't have businesses up and move because there's a lot that it takes to relocate. Um, residential, a tenant can break a lease and just move, you know, next door <laughs> or move yeah. across the street, you know. The worst thing that's going to happen is, you know, broken lease on your on your on your record if the landlord files for that. So, you know, in both spaces, there's there's a lot of value, um, in both in, in both areas, both commercially and uh, residential. Awesome. So, Victor, I'm coming to you on this one. So, you know, Chidi touched on something. The the tenant in a residential in a regular single family house or duplex or whatnot. Um, you know, they, they'll sign a one-year lease. If you're lucky, it's two. And I, I don't know, even as a landlord, you know, as an homeowner, you may not, you may not want to do two years because you, you don't know what the market's doing. So from a, from a residential standpoint, it's a year, give or take, right? But from a commercial, what are you looking at? Is it, I've heard anywhere from five to 10 uh, for the lease. Um, can you touch on that? And, and then I have a follow-up question about tenant improvements, but touch on the timeline. Yes. So, I mean, in most cases, the minimum you will see for most commercial spaces, unless you're like an office building where, you know, you sign a one-year, two-year leases, it's generally three years is the minimum we have to do in commercial, right? So between three and five years. Uh, if you are renting to a smaller company, three to five years. If you're into a bigger company, you know, national and tenants, you know, something like 10 years, 20 years, or 10 years with uh, multiple options to renew of, you know, multiple 10 years. And typically, even if you sign it three to five years, you will still see them stay longer. So it's not unusual to see a company that's renting a place for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, thereabout, right? I mean, if you walk down the, um, I mean, just say like a Walmart, or a, 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 a CVS or Chase Bank in your area, uh, they probably be there for 20, 25, 30 years in that same location, you know? So that's the beauty of commercial. Um, now the length of lease kind of ties to your tenant improvement. So I won't answer the question until you ask it. Well, you know, that's perfect. Talk, talk, talk about that because, you know, when you look at a, a commercial property, you know, tenant improvement and basically, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but tenant improvement is basically, you know, I sign a new lease on a property as a business um, and I need to fit this, you know, empty box or, you know, already predefined box into my mold. Say I'm a restaurant and it, and it was a department store before uh, and I need some, you know, it's going to cost me a little bit to get it ready. That's, that's kind of tenant improvement, um, if I'm not mistaken. Do you want to touch on that? And then also maybe while you're touching on that, touch on, you know, cost of maintenance for a commercial as opposed to residential. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So tenant improvement, like, like you said, right, usually uh, unlike a home or, or residential space where when you go in there, the use is the same, right? You have a three-bedroom house or three-bedroom apartment with bathrooms and living room. The use is the same. You might modify a little bit here and there, paint some walls or whatever the case is. In commercial spaces, the uses are always different, right? So if you're a restaurant versus a post office, 
you know, versus being, you know, a, a school, a, med a medical office, you know, what you need is different, right? So the build up always changes, you know, if you're a retail place, you need racks and open space versus if you're, if you're medical space, you need, you know, beds and machines and different off uh, examination rooms. So uh, a tenant goes in, they say, hey, I need to build the space out. Uh, sometimes they don't have enough plumbing. You don't have plumbing, you don't have HVAC, you don't have anything there because you're not quite sure where they want to put their, how they want to, how the place laid out, where they want to put their bathrooms. So a landlord and tenant go to negotiation on, I'm the landlord, I will give you some proceeds to help you build out one, help you build out what you need, like plumbing, HVAC, flooring, those kind of things. And maybe even help you build out what you need for your own specific business use, like color of the paints. You know, you want your own emblem somewhere. You want to have a front desk, right? That's more industry specific versus building specific. So none of them actually give you funds to actually do that as well. Now, all this, what they're giving you is sort of kind of an exchange for perhaps a higher uh, rental amount or longer lease. So for example, if Lana and Chidi are both potential tenants and Lana does not need any, does not need any tenant improvements and I charge him $10 per square foot for a five-year lease, or if Chidi needs, you know, a hundred grand of tenant improvements, perhaps I'll charge him $14 per square foot and make some of that money back, right? So he pays it over time. And I say, hey, you need to sign a, a 10-year lease, right? So something like along those lines. You have to be very careful with that. So on the smaller companies, we tend not to do too long of a lease. Because, you know, we know small companies don't last as long as a McDonald's, right? So uh, once the, usually once the owner, the uh, owner founder exits the company or some kind of scandal or divorce or whatever, there goes the company. So you don't, you don't want to pay all this money out on a build out in the beginning, uh, hoping to recoup that over a 10 year lease. But in four and a half years, the company kind of packs up due to whatever the situation is, right? So you know, mm -hmm. like be careful with that. Awesome. Uh, that's that's kind of about about the build up, you know. That's enough before we bore our audience on build on build out. On build up. Okay, so I think the other part to that was, you know, cost of maintenance. Like, how much might it cost, um, you know, to maintain a commercial property as opposed to a residential property. Can you touch a little bit on that? Yeah, I think that's also one of the benefits of having commercial over residential, right? So commercial properties have what we call, uh, call either triple net lease or a double net lease or operating expenses or one of those things. What essentially all that means is that most of the cost of the maintenance is passed on to the tenants, right? So almost everything, even sometimes via marketing expenses, is passed on to the tenants. Uh, and there's a various types of you know percentage rents. There's several other kind of lease you can do in commercial, whereas in residential, most of the the maintenance cost is retained by the landlord. So things like property taxes, insurance. Uh, parking lots, uh, sweeping trash services in commercial, those things are passing to tenants. Whereas in residential, you know, parking lot of the property complex is being taken care of by the landlord, you know, the pool, uh, the taxes, the insurance. There's another separate line of cost to tenants. Does that, mm -hmm. that help? Yeah, no, yeah, that, that really does. You know, and as I think about it, you know, just knowing the residential world as well, you know, when one of the things that's usually a cost or something to consider is, you know, uh, if, if the AC goes out, you know, if the, the roof or uh, plumbing foundation, those are things that, that could cost um, as opposed to uh, in the commercial world, um, you know, it, it's a little different in the commercial world. Um, you know, those, okay. those expenses in the commercial world, those expenses are passed on, um, you know, to the, um, you know, to the resident uh, or the, the, the tenant of that space. So, um, Chidi, I was coming to you to ask you a question about, you know, uh, let, it, let's say I want to get into a, a real estate property that is a duplex. Um, yeah. 
uh, how, what, what are some of the ways to go about finding that property? And now this is, that's a very vague question, but what I'm leading mm. to is, is something you and I, there was some WebEx or Zoom or uh, webinar we were on not too long ago. And there was this whole thing mm. about, you know, leads, analysis and all that. Can you just touch a little bit on that? Yes. So, um, so it kind of depends on how you, know, you can get into real estate. There are people that do it, um, you know, just as an investment strategy, they're buying a property here and there. Now you have a different breed of people that are trying to do it as a business. Um, in that said, these are people that are trying to source. You cannot be in business and buy one property every year. One that wouldn't work. Get out of business. Now you have to create a marketing channel. You want to decide, okay, if I want to focus on a particular zip code, how do I market to that particular zip code? Send mailers out, send direct marketing out, you know, do cold calling, you do driving for dollars. There are multiple things to do to find this property. None of them is the easiest one um, because, for example, even though it's costing you money to send mailers, but you're one of 10 other investors that is selling that sell that is sending that same mailer to a seller so you know it's it, sometimes it's a draw the hat you know sometimes this sellers get you know overwhelmed with all this mailing information that they get that they don't even know what to do um so so that's it so if it's just as an individual pick up a few properties here and there just get connected to an investor realtor and why i say investor realtor is this you should know what is a good investment property. Um, there are some realtors that will send you properties that are worth more than the value. As an investor, you don't want to buy those kind of properties. But if you just buy one or two, you know, it's okay because, you know, it's not a, it's not a strategy. You're just wanting to acquire a few properties. You can make that discretionary call and buy properties a little bit more than what it's worth. But as an investor, you need to go in with that spread. You also want to make sure that it's cash flowing. That's point number two. So you want to do the math of how much is the possible rental income that will be coming from this property versus you, what your expenses. Yes. Yeah. No. I, I, I don't. I don't want people to lose sight of what you're getting ready to share. So first of all, how do you? What do you mean by cash flowing? A cash flowing deal. Yeah. So a, a cash flow. A good cash flow property could be positive. A bad, of course, is negative. Um, negative is where your expenses exceed your income. Um, while positive means that by the time you add up every expense that is associated with that property, you're in the positive. You're in the green. Um, so is my mortgage, is it $1,000 mortgage, including taxes and insurance? Um, and my rental income from that property combined, depending on the number of units, is only $800. That means that every month I'm bringing money out of my pocket to pay that mortgage and to service that property. That's negative. So positive cash flow is anything that is more than $1,000 that is over your expenses. And you don't want to limit your expenses to only your mortgage. You know, there's CapEx. Right, which is you know property improvement in the future. Yeah. There's maintenance and expenses too. Um, you know things will break down. Water heater is going to break down. Um, the light is going. Things are going to happen. Plumbing, clogged toilets. You know I've I've seen everything all. Um, you you want to make allowance for that in a way that no matter what happens every month, to unless you have like a one-time expense like. If the air conditioning goes out, you have to replace the air conditioning. That's a $7,000 bill that you might never have to incur for the next four years or five years. Um, these days, you're getting up to 10 years warranty on a brand new air conditioning. You know, so, so that's one of expenses. But other things like plumbing, clogged toilets and things like that, you want to make sure that whatever income you're making from that property far exceeds. Um, some people have like numbers that they try to work with to say, hey, if I'm above 0.8, if I'm above 1%, if I'm above 1.25, if I'm at 8%, 10%, um, you know, that's a good number. In this market, day and age, you know, to be honest, 
you know, it, it is hard to be at that sweet spot, you know, but just, you know, and there are a lot of calculators that are out there that can help you do this math where you plug in the information of the expenses associated with it and it will give you an idea of what where you are, you know, positive or negative. You know, I will advise, you know, new entrants into the investor world to use those calculators than just doing manually. That way you don't forget something. Um, something you could easily forget is, uh, and this has happened to me, uh, I didn't escrow for taxes and insurance. And I'm like, woohoo, I'm making a great cash flow. And then October came around, I got a, a bill from um, our lovely um, state of Texas property taxes. Right. And that property was about maybe $4,000. And I go to my bank and the money wasn't sitting there mm. because I thought that I was, that was all of my money, you know? Um, so it takes that great deal of discipline to say, I don't want to escrow my tax and insurance. However, I'm saving that money in an account. So when it comes due, I can afford to pay it. Think about this. It might be easy to cough out $4,000 to pay that taxes, but if you own 10 properties and that's $40,000, right. you might be in trouble if you don't have that money set aside to make that payment. Um, so all of this goes into cash flow. At the end of the day, you know, you always want to make sure that you're not underwater in your property and it's not costing you more to hold on to that property. If not, you want to let go of it. Yeah, no, Chidi, I appreciate that. And, you know, one of the things that you touched on that I don't want people to lose sight of is, you know, as a newbie, if you're new into real estate world, we're talking about real life monopoly today. But if you're new to real estate world, use the tools and resources that are out there. Uh, don't try to wing it, you know, do some Google searches and and find some bigger pockets as one. Uh, I mean, there, there are tons of them. There are tons of them. And um, I, I, I'm not getting any uh, royalty for dropping bigger pockets here. But, you know, there, there are tons of them and using calculation, uh, the calculator is probably uh, everyone's best bet. Victor, you know, just thinking on the commercial side, you know, uh, would you say, you know, from a cash flow standpoint, is it a similar math? Is it similarly trying to, uh, you know, make sure that your total expenses is obviously much less than the income? Um, what else should one be looking at if you were to get into a commercial that would be an expense associated with that property? Okay, yeah. So it, it's kind of generally similar, right? Uh, it's all numbers. You want to have more income than expenses overall, generally, right? That's just math in business. So however, a slight difference is that with commercial, the kind of calculation that you do is just more detailed and more intricate than residential, right? So in commercial, we usually call it cap rate, a capitalization rate, right? So uh, some, someone could be running a negative cash flow property or not as strong of a cash flow property because they're holding out for a big windfall when they sell the property. Right, so that's what you see when people buy an apartment complex for, say, twenty million dollars. They put they're running the cash flow negative for a few years, trying to, re, you know, fix the place up, build it up, and then start raising rents. Uh, you know, you know, put new roof, new whatever the case is, and then in three years they bought it from twenty million and sold it for forty-five million dollars. Right, so the, the the negative cash flow they were, they were experiencing during this period is worthwhile because now they're making a big windfall of $25 million at the end. So that, that's, so, so commercial is just more, more intricate. It's a lot more strategizing, a, more, a, lot of more, a lot of assets management on the asset level and portfolio level than residential. But yeah. overall, it may, it's the same, same concept, right? You want to be cash flow positive at, at all times because if, you, if, you, if you're negative cash flow too long, you can get in trouble. Yeah, you know, and I want to piggyback on something you said here um, that, you know, with the commercial world, you know, you may do like a, it may be a property where your uh, 20, 20 million is the initial cost, but your, your cash flow negative for a while, and then you turn around and, and then you do that 
big sale because you've improved the property. Um, from your experience, um, you know, I imagine that's you could also play that same game, um, not only on the commercial in the sense of uh, office buildings and and all that stuff, but you could also do that in apartments, right? You could also do that with uh, multifamily. What what folks might call multifamily, correct? Well, that's correct. That's one one thing I wanted to kind of talk about early on, but I didn't want to I didn't want to ruffle too much feathers. So when we talk about residential and commercial, I like to at least on the onset let's clarify our definitions. What what do we what do we mean by that? Right. So a lot of people consider residential apartments. I consider uh, apartments to be commercial. Mm -hmm. They're just more family commercial, right? Because it's out there for a commercial endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, an apartment and a single family house or a townhouse condo, even though they're both housing people, different rules, right? For example, you know, you cannot get a residential loan for an apartment. There's going to be a commercial loan for an apartment. The same thing, it's hard to get a commercial loan for a single family house or a duplex. So, so in my definition, everything four units or under is residential. Five units, apartments or more, I consider commercial, but a multifamily commercial. Now, among those commercial spaces, there's still different rules, right? So uh, a, an office space and a, a, and, a, and a shopping complex typically will have different rules of leases. An industrial space and a shopping complex will have, will have different rules. Uh, like a, uh, a storage facility and a, a retail space have different rules. They're both commercial, but when you rent out a storage facility, you don't pay the taxes, you don't pay the insurance as the tenant renting that space, you just pay one gross lease. You don't pay for light bill or water bill, whereas if you, if you rent retail, you pay those things as the tenant. Mm. So they're still all on the different rules, but yes, you're correct. Apartments, when it comes to that cap rate and adding value, apartment, even though it's a residential, quote unquote, I'm doing my air quotes right now, right. even if it's a residential, it still falls under commercial when it comes to some, some certain characteristics of it. That's awesome. Thank you for that delineation. And that's that's the finance hat of real estate that you're wearing, describing that for us. Because you're, I mean, spot on, you know, anyone that gets into a multifamily above four doors, I believe, um, if I'm not mistaken, your the the loan at that point is is um, is commercial. Chidi, coming coming to you now, um, you know when you think about you know all these things that Victor is sharing about really the intricacies of a uh, and and again using the term commercial to imply you know office buildings and and the likes and it's not um, housing in the sense that I live. When you think about that and the complexity of that, would you say you know, I'm coming to you because you do it already. You you engage, you, you look for these deals, as you talked about leads earlier, you look for these deals in some cases by yourself. In other words, you can almost do the residential, the, the single family, the maybe two door, three door, fourplex max. You can almost do them by yourself. But what do you think? I mean, you, do you think, and I, I'm, again, I'm coming to Chidi as opposed to Victor, because Victor is a realtor and, and a broker and one who would say you should. But Chidi, do you think from a commercial standpoint, is that something that one can dabble into without, without a professional, without engaging a realtor? What do you think? Yes. Yeah, so um, I don't know if it's, if it's possible for you to like get commercial properties that way. Um, um, I mean, you, you have the data of ownerships of these properties. You can reach out to them commercial properties um you know that might that might feel just just because of the space it's in um it's not just a residential property where you're putting in one tenant in there um they and i'm sure some people have been able to buy commercial properties that way but i i haven't personally heard of people that have been very successful in doing their own direct marketing and buying commercial properties on large scale now, maybe a little office building somewhere here and there, um, yes. But, you know, when I think about real commercial properties, I'm thinking like huge, huge properties, you know, 40,000 square foot and above um, in that space. And I don't know if Victor wants to, uh, I know being a realtor too, they don't really like wholesaling and direct to buyers, you know, because they still want to make that cut. 
So, Victor, have you have you ever have you heard of people being able to um, buy commercial properties without going through a realtor or going through a broker? Uh, yes, yes, uh, it happens. Uh, obviously, like you said, as a realtor, I want to encourage people to use us for their service, but it, it happens, right? Um, I, I can equate it to basically being uh, trying to represent yourself in in a case, right? You you can, you could do it, but it's probably not advisable to do that, right? Because you get overly emotional, you make you know, a different decision than when you have someone else advocating for you, looking for a neutral position and giving you good advice and helping you look for good properties. So a good real estate broker is worth their commission, yeah. but you can do without it. Yeah, I appreciate that answer because I, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm a big fan of is as professionals in, in different spheres, because, you know, I, the way you answered it was, a good real estate is, uh, broker is worth their commission because when the chips are down and there's a cost to to things done wrong, you know you don't you don't the penalty you pay may be much more than the attempt to bypass. So now if you you know from a residential standpoint, if you get some wholesalers and you work with a title company and you do one or two things, you know, and you do it a couple times with with a couple people, yeah, I could see that. But but going that that larger scale, you definitely want um, you want someone to hold your hand as you go through it. Um, yeah, yeah, let, let me give another analogy. Like I, I use the whole lawyer thing. It's also like you know, think about an accountant as well, right? So if you're trying to uh, um, do a, a deal, uh, if you're trying to file your taxes, and if you're an employee, you know, with one property. Not a lot of complexity, no biggie. Do it yourself, right? But when you start having several K-1s, buying property, real estate, cars for your company, and then trying to, you know, trying to do those taxes on your own, you can do it on your own, but it's advisable to use a professional, right? You know, medic medicine, right? You're in medical medicine. Right. You, know, you can treat a headache on your own, but you start doing you know, major surgery. You could do it on your own if you want to, but <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's, not, it's not wise. I like that. I like that. I like I like the medical one. That's a great point. You could you could take some time along on your own, but but yeah, but that yeah, biased. You know, I could I could relate to that one. That's, <laughs> it definitely was biased. So. I have one last question for you both, okay? And I'm going to start with you, Chidi. Um, so you touched on 2016 was kind of when you you started to look in and kind of got into real estate, 16, yeah. 17. So you, you're about four, four or five years in the game now. Um, here's a question. What would you tell, now that you're four or five years into the game, what would you tell Chidi uh, in 2016 or 2017 what would you tell you that you don't know now that you should be aware of? I would, I, I would start by telling me, you know, first of all, take risk. Um, you know, initially at the time that I started, because I didn't have enough information, um, I, I, was, I was more conservative. And I realized that in the deals and properties that I was able to get into at the time, um, today, five years from now, I'm like, I'm glad I did. And I'm like, I wish I actually got more at that time. Um, you know, Victor said something that was very important. He said, sometimes it takes almost the same amount of strength, if not less, to take down the bigger deals than it is to take, take down the smaller ones. And, you, you know, with those smaller ones, they tie you down. You know, you, you're emotional. You're spending more time on just, you know, a property that shouldn't even you have the business playing with. Um, but just because you want to take down that property, um, you, you you spend more time and sometimes even more money. Um, so in hindsight, now I'm like, man, I should I should have done more. I should have been more aggressive. I should have done more marketing. I should have been, um, you know, taking down more than than I should. And you know, also coming into the field of where Victor is, you know, maybe got into commercial, uh, you know, a little bit earlier from than now. And I'm still thinking about getting into it. Um, but maybe I should have done that two years ago. 
Um, you know, someone says something that the best time to, to plant a tree was yesterday, the next best time is today. Um, you know, so even though time has passed, um, but for everyone out there that still thinking about it and you're wondering, oops, I don't have this money. Um, how can I get into it? You know, I bought my first property without having money in the bank. Um, but as soon as I got that property, that contract, I had to figure out creative ways in financing that property. And that can be another conversation for another day on how to finance deals and take them down. Um, but, but money was the last or the least of the problem at the time, even though that's what is required in buying these properties. Um, but it's just bottom line, just go out there, take risks, um, use the tools available. Um, and, and, you know, real estate works, real estate works. Chidi, thank you for that. So I'm going to come back to you after I ask Victor that same question, because I think that's an important takeaway, which is, you know, how do you fund a deal without money? You know, that we'll end with that, but let me come to Victor on this. Victor, same question to you. Um, you know, you've been in the game longer. I, I think, um, let me see, um, Jadi was probably a, a few years in. I mean, you're talking, you've been in the game since what, 2013, Victor? If right, I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. eight years yeah. in now, what would you tell a younger version of you as regards the real estate world um, trying to get into real estate because you've done you've done the residentials you you're now more into the commercial even as an owner as opposed to just a broker or whatnot what would you tell a younger version of you well man that's a tough question honestly um but before i answer that question let me just kind of uh tidy up on the one adage that uh chidi just mentioned like the, the, the whole tree thing i think what is i think it's something about like the best time to plant a tree was a hundred years ago hmm. And the second best time is today, is today, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes, you know, having years of experiences is definitely worthwhile. But you just you start from you start one day at a time, right? Mm -hmm. Now that being said, honestly, um, it's it's really hard for me to go back and say I would do something differently. I think we are all exactly where we need to be today, right? You know, uh, all the experiences I've been through back then led me to where I am today and this was going to lead me to where I'm going to be tomorrow and next year, right? I mean, I, I don't, you, you can't get older faster. You can't mm. grow up faster, right? You know, you got to take one day at a time and, you know, and we're all on a different path, right? Someone that probably started in 2013 like me took a different path. It's probably 10 times as wealthy as, me, as I am, but doesn't mean that that's my path. Right. As long as, you know, pleased with where I'm going today, where I'm today, I'm where I'm going tomorrow. And, and every, all those steps, you know, if, if I, if I short circuited it early on, maybe I would have led into a disaster, right? I have people that, you know, built millions of dollars portfolio in their first two years to turn around in the third year and lose it all, right? So those times, those, that experience is a building block for safety, for comfort, for knowledge. You know, I think, you know, just learning more, be open, be curious, uh, uh, constant looking for growth. I'm always looking for growth. What's the next project? What can I learn? And trying to be stagnant, you know, always networking, networking and learn from people, right? So my jump from residential to commercial was from just kind of listening listen to people say, hey, what are you doing? This is not the path. And I was open-minded. I was kind of learning more about it. Like, well, you know, this is correct. I can't, I can't make a big splash by only having those greenhouses and monopoly. I need to get, I need to get hotels. Mm -hmm. That's what you really make the wealth, right? Those kind of things, you know. But overall, it's good to you know take bigger, take bigger, do bigger deals. But, you know, sometimes maybe we're not ready for bigger deals, right? Because, some, you know, they, I mean, bigger deals comes with bigger, big, bigger headache and bigger, bigger pain and potential for bigger losses, right? But I think, you know, the old the 2013 Victor and, you know, and 2021 Victor were, are both exactly where they need to be at that point in time. Thank you. Okay. I, I see that and I, I can appreciate that. Tidi. So back to you on this last, as the last takeaway, the biggest last takeaway of, you know, how do you fund a, no, maybe not how do you fund, how do you get a property under contract and, 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 and 
own that property with other people's money. They call it OPM. Give us just an analogy of maybe just an example of, of something. It doesn't have to be your example, but how could someone do that? Um, so it all, it all depends on how you find that property. So initially, you know, when I talked about um, the business, the business side of being able to market directly to um, homeowners and, you know, that gives you that opportunity in being able to um, negotiate better in the sense that a property could be worth, a, you know, $100,000, but you might be able to convince this owner just because of a lot of things going on they could be really motivated to sell maybe they had a debt in the family maybe they're going through a foreclosure financial difficulty maybe the property needs a lot of work maybe all the tenants living there and left the house in in you know in reckless shape and this landlord doesn't want to put in another twenty thousand dollars to improve on the property and he's willing to sell that property to you a little bit less than what it's worth um, at this point, you know, if this house is worth a hundred thousand dollars, I'm going to use very simple numbers, um, just, just, just so we can easily understand and follow through. If the property is worth a hundred thousand dollars and it's going to need about twenty thousand dollars of work for it to look good, right? Talking directly to the seller, if I'm able to convince the seller to sell this property to me for forty thousand dollars, or Fifty thousand um, dollars, but it's worth hundred thousand once it's really fixed up, not not at the current state, but the after repair value of hundred thousand dollars. There are lots of hard money lenders that will be willing to lend you up to seventy percent of the value of that house. Mm. So what that means is, this this lenders will send an appraiser out there that will look at the future state of this property not the current state, what it's going to look like. And they will say, okay, let's see what you're going to do. Well, the improvement you're going to make is what's 100. We're going to give you $70,000 to buy this property. Now, keep in mind that you're under contract for 50 and you need, you need another 20 to fix it up. Because they can lend you 70% of the property, you've literally bought a property without any of your money in a transaction. Literally. So when people say you can own a property without zero down, that's exactly what it is. Um, and so this lender gives you $70,000. Of course, they don't throw the whole 70 to you. As you make the improvements, they, you take draws on the $20,000 that you have with them. By the time it's all said and done, you can then decide to either sell that property for $100,000, which is what it's worth, pay off the lender 70 and you keep the spread of 30. It sounds very easy to do, you know, theoretically, but again, practically, you know, that 20,000 you were thinking was going to be the cost to fix up might end up being 25, but that's okay. You know, that just means you're making $5,000 less than what you would have made without any of your money in the transaction. Now, none of this would have been possible if you had found that property in the MLS. Because at this point, you're, you're competing with plus, <laughs> plus one million extra people that are looking at that same property, right? Um, and again, if it's on the MLS, chances are the, 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 the seller will be asking for a lot more than what it would have been um, if it wasn't. So that's one way where you can finance deals. Um, but again, that also requires you to um, either do some marketing to get directly to sellers or get in contact with a few wholesalers um, that are in your neighborhood, in your area, in your zip code, in the area of your interest in investment, ask to be on their mailing list. Um, wholesalers do the legwork for you in finding these deals for you, and then you can buy them and pay them a finder's fee. Um, but I will tell you that in some states, wholesaling is now illegal in some states, so make sure you're following your state laws as refers to wholesaling. Um, but the point is, you always wanna get the property less than what it's worth. Yeah. You know, that's the key point. Always make sure you can get that property. So even if you get it from the MLS, 
run your numbers. If it's, if you, if you can foresee potential in that property and no one is seeing, that's a good deal. Um, but you don't want to be over water uh, unless you have that money to bring to the table. Keep in mind for investment properties, lenders want to see at least 15% equity. So if that same property worth $100,000, you're buying it for 100, you would have to come to the table with $15,000 versus if you're going to buy it for less than what it's worth and then improve it. So now one question I usually get is, <laughs> why would a homeowner want to sell the property for less than what it's worth? Um, does that happen? Yes. You just have to ensure, um, you just have to be able to identify that they're motivated. And people come and motivated for a whole different reason. It could have been an inherited property. They live in California, the parent lives in Texas, they passed away. They don't want to deal with the property in Texas and travel all the way down to Texas. If you can get a hold of them and offer them less than what it's worth, they'll, they'll sell it to you. You know, it's just being able to identify, negotiate, and then own the property. Wow, Chidi, that was that was a lot. That was a lot of nuggets. And I, I don't want people to lose sight of a few things that you said. You talked about, you know, the after retail value or the after repair value. In essence, that's the value, the future value of the property. You know, this analogy of buy low, sell high, that concept applies to the ARV. You talked about hard money lenders and hard money lenders are people who would loan you money. Yes, they loan you at a higher interest rate than a conventional loan, but they will loan you money with the assumption that there is a, a sizable equity. Just in case you default, they as well would be beneficiary of that property. So hard money lender was the second key thing. The third thing you talked about was wholesalers and wholesalers are folks who basically they're hustlers. They go find these deals. They go find the ones that are... Um, you know, uh, a penny on the dollar, some will say. So basically, you know, 60% or 70% and they sell it to you for 75 or 80 or whatever the case may be, or they charge you a certain fee. So ARV, uh, after repair value, hard money lenders, wholesalers, those are all important things for whoever's listening that's interested in real estate to uh, maybe do some homework on. And obviously when you get into a hard money property, uh, you want to refinance out of it. Because at that point, you want to get away from the 10, 11, 12% and go to a conventional, you know, three to eight, three to, I'm sorry, three to five or whatever the case may be in the current state um, that you're in. Mm -hmm.